Hello and welcome to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, the Third Eye Doctor. Pull up a chair and get ready for some candid and uncompromising discussion with experts, innovators, agitators, and influential people from every corner of health and well-being. From inside the hospital to at home in the kitchen, we're leaving no stone unturned in our quest to uncover the secrets of healthier, happier, more successful, and less stressful lives. Thank you so much for joining us, and without further ado, let's meet this episode's guest. Hello and welcome to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. This is Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, the Third Eye Doctor. Thanks for tuning in today, and we have uh, Nats with us today. Hello, Nats. Hello, Haider. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. We always have very interesting conversations. We've had several conversations in the past, and sometimes we do get very deep. Um, but, you know, it's easy to be superficial, and it takes a bit of effort to go deep. And um, and you do a lot of deep work, I must say. Um, some of the uh, uh, content that you produce on your website um, and on your Twitter feed... Uh, and in your group um, gets really really deep into you know the human aspect of us rather than just sort of staying on the professional level which I mean for me it it is quite superficial <laughs> um, so I, I'm, I'm I'm interested I'm, I'm, I'm interested about your journey into um, into well-being mm. um. I think it's just observation of my life and mainly experiencing others. So yeah. I've grown up always been feeling like an outsider and always looking in. And it was sort of self-imposed. I was shy. But I was always looking, intrigued by human interaction and why people do the things they do. Why do they make the choices they make? And even though at a young age I wasn't thinking in those terms, as I got older, it was the same fascination with people but now giving a language to it so I find it hard to be superficial or to just float on the surface of anything mm. I'm always interested in what's going on beneath the surface what's happened behind the story of that that person is telling right now or just the words that they're expressing what's what else is going on mm. um, and as soon as I started asking those questions more I started receiving answers and things that behind the words that are concealed within the words um, and then learning whole other language mm. of intuition mm. when, 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 when do you think was that aha moment for you it was in high school I think people would always naturally come to me with their problems because I was the only one who didn't have a boyfriend who was, <laughs> didn't have any drama <laughs> going on even though that's what I wanted so badly um, I was forced into this kind of outsider um, supporter friend person and people would just come to me and I would just have knowledge about what's going on in their relationship dynamic before they even said anything to me mm. about it mm. so that would freak some people out freak me out but it was just like a clear knowing like oh of course this is what's happening of course this is what's playing out in your relationship because he or she has all this stuff and you have all this stuff so naturally of course so that it was like how could you not see that because mm, <laughs> mm. I get it so that's that's when it started to happen but I didn't think much of it 
I just got the comment, wow, you're really good with advice. You should go into psychology. <laughs> mm, mm, and mm. I, I didn't know what else to do from there. <laughs> where, 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 where do you think that, that came from, that sort of ability to, to know about people's relationships? I think could be the training from a young age and just observing without knowing that I was observing. I think we all have these natural abilities. We are all mm. intuitive. Mm. We all can read what's beneath the surface if we're interested in seeing what's beneath the surface. Well, first we have to know that there's something beneath the surface, mm. that there's depths to every person, mm. and that we have to have, be interested in seeing what's beneath the surface, what's, be, what's beneath the story or the persona or the facade that someone is showing. Mm. Mm. I mean, I have a similar experience. I mean... I always consider m myself to be an outsider and and I didn't have any um, let's say uh, attraction relationships with males or females so I was like the person to go to for advice and I think for me it was it was just the process of listening and um, letting people offload what they had uh, onto me and I felt the load myself and you know I would get tired and burnt out um so 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 there wasn't one incident that you think really i mean you know you said the teenagers that you know you're sort of in your teenagers and that was the thing that was that because your 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 awareness changed during those years of yourself um i was an awkward teenager in that i looked awkward and felt like awkward i don't think i had a change in awareness I think it was the friends, mm. of one particular friend who was interested in the more occult, esoteric, which, you know, at 12 and 13 is kind of an odd thing, <laughs> um, especially in the protective shell that I grew up in. So that sort of opened me up to like concepts of, say, astral projection and the occult and things that, you know, I was only exposed to because of her. So I think that might have played a part in just opening me up to understanding that there is more than meets the eye in the world mm. um, and people but I, I think when you ask me that question now the person who comes to mind is my best friend and just sharing her, her stories of her um, experiences with a boyfriend and like you know how you just said you, you, weren't, you didn't have any sort of romantic partners and so you became the go-to person um, and you would listen, I would do that for a bit but because I just had information about what was going on I would stop listening and I would interrupt and just share what I thought or shared the advice you know this is what I think you should do even though I haven't been in that situation you know I how could I know that that advice would be useful but I said it with such authority that people listened but then they would feel ashamed that they couldn't implement it and they wouldn't come back to me to uh -huh. let me know that or they would delay so you know I guess it's a I might be fast forwarding, but there's, you know, a lesson there about um, you might get information, but it's good to just let that person complete their offload before you think about sharing it or exploring something a little deeper. Yes, because it yeah. might be off base. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it takes time, doesn't it? Not to um, n not to coach or not to teach, just to yeah. sort of be present. Or rescue. With <laughs> mm, yeah, we're good at that as uh, as healthcare professionals. Mm. Um, I mean, well-being now is a bit of a big buzzword at the moment. Everyone's getting on that bandwagon. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I sometimes have reluctance to use it. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Sorry, I cut you off. Well-being, just like everything, wellness, well-being, it's an industry now, Mm. a multi-billion dollar industry that um, exploits people's suffering. And, you know, I'm part of that industry, of course, not the exploitation bit, I hope, but the recognition that there are missing ingredients to what we've been taught is uh, fundamentals of health. And it's the stuff beneath the surface that you can't see and you can feel and you can be have an awareness of, but it's not something you can give a pill to fix. It requires a lot of effort and work and determination, commitment to um, being well or feeling well despite whatever's going on in life. And so if I look at my journey, I've always been intuitive and could tune in to what was happening for a person. I shut that down for a bit during my scientific, my scientist years because you had to be able to provide proof, evidence, you know, um, um, some way of showing what you're talking about. And so I had to kind of, there was no room for that intuitiveness to, to exist in that time. And then as I got into my late 20s, it became a huge call and it, by the time I was in my 30s, it's like, you can't ignore this anymore. This, this, this is what you need to pay, pay attention to, and it'll, it'll take over. So it was through observing doctors, oncologists in practice that it took over. It was just the thing. It just, their actions, their words, their experiences started speaking to me more than the words they were using to speak to me. Does that make sense? <laughs> um, kind of. Maybe maybe some of the listeners don't understand what you mean by that. How, 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 um, how would you describe so, that? How, yeah. how would you explain that? So shadowing oncologists in their practice, um, working with children and young people with cancer as well as survivors, they would go through the motions, you know, the rituals of the doctor-patient relationship, asking the right questions, showing empathy, showing compassion, having, you know, using humor, helping people feel at ease. But there was such a discomfort in the room as well, not just coming from patients, but also coming from doctors. And the conversations that I would be listening to among all the doctors, as well as what um, they would share with me or the comments that they would say to me about you know, what they have to do, told me more about them, that Mm. they are witnessing and experiencing existential crisis, even distress all the time, Mm. and that there was no outlet and there was no support to process that. Mm. Or if there was, they weren't using it. Mm. And so they carry that with them day in and day out from patient to patient to consult, from consult to consult, into their families, into their everything, which is part of a driving force to keep them um, committed and determined to help in the way that they do. But it, I think, f- never feels like it's enough. So I was able to f- just feel all that mm. in that short interaction without them saying anything about it. Mm. 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 So I'm just able to feel the feelings that were unexpressed. But they spoke to me more la- strongly or strongly loudly than the words that they would use to describe their experience. Mm. Mm. 
So I mean, it's a very stressful situation. I mean, it's a very stressful interaction and uh, life situation. Um, mm. I mean, it's not for everyone. And Definitely not for everyone. And I mean, I mean how do we prepare? Uh, you know, the the up and coming doctors or the ones who are there right now for these for these difficult situations. I mean, existentially, well, it's, it's it's very difficult being in these. Uh, in these interactions yeah well I think one is the not going in to any interaction thinking that they're stressful or difficult because that's one perception mm. but they have to remember why they're going into why they've chosen or the profession has chosen them or they just chose that profession because they want to make a difference they're not necessarily there to cure everything mm. but they're there to provide comfort support information humor mm whatever is in their realm of expertise to, to provide without necessarily giving them the whole treatment, the whole everything to cure, to bring them back to a state of complete perfect health. Mm. So mm. I think being realistic about what they can provide mm. and not ho taking the responsibility on someone else of someone else's well-being on their shoulders because mm. ultimately they're not responsible for that. Mm. They're responsible for what they can provide and maintaining their role and their purpose boundaries mm. so those are when we when anyone doesn't do that well then they will feel responsible they'll feel like there's so much more that they could do should do should have done mm. and they will never be at peace with what they have done and so of course everything will feel difficult or um uncomfortable mm. versus mm. fulfilling or meaningful mm. Mm. So it's changing, or, you know, changing that perspective, changing that mindset, essentially. Yeah, as well as becoming, being fully aware of what your role is. And doctors play multiple roles in mm. a single consultation. Mm. Again, you can be a coach, you can be a teacher, you could be um, a friend, you mm. can be a, a pastoral carer, mm. you can be, you know, there's 10 hats I'm sure you can wear. Mm. And it's mm. just knowing what each hat is for and maybe not wearing all of them at once. And sometimes you may only need to wear one hat. Maybe your role is just being the listener. Mm. And that's the only intervention that's required in that time you have with your patient um, and being okay with feeling like that's enough mm. because you notice the effect that that has on the patient. And hopefully the effect is they felt validated, heard, relief to be able to offload some of their worries to someone um, so, yeah, being clear about your role and the boundaries of that role, the expectations that you have of yourself, expectations that the patient should, could have of you, making sure that that's a shared understanding. Mm. Um, so, and also re always being present to your purpose. What am I here for? What am mm. I trying to achieve? Mm. When you lose sight of that, then you, it's easy to become overwhelmed by so-called the difficulty or the stress mm. that can be countered I, I, purpose is really important and, and do you think purpose changes as your purpose changes or has it stayed the same throughout the years I think it depends I think your vision can change mm. over mm. time or evolve as you're evolving um, the purpose for example if you're here to serve humanity mm. in mm. the in the form of being a doctor, then the purpose doesn't change. You're always going to serve. It's the way you go about it, the way that looks in practice, 
or outside of practice that can change. Mm. But ultimately, mm. you're there to do that that job. So if anything gets in the way of that, that will be a source of Ill, illness or um, distress or mm. crisis, things that interfere with your well-being, not being able to fulfill your purpose or feel or perceive that you're fulfilling a purpose. Mm. Mm. So it's sort of the vision or the periphery around purpose that changes, but ultimately the purpose is um, uh, pretty much the same. And uh, looking at your website, you know, you talk about um, depression being a catalyst for change for me yes 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 <laughs> yes. Yeah. yes yeah because it's a state of existence that's not sustainable so mm. something has to change mm. and the way I think or experience or feel about anything needed adjust assessment and adjustment if I found that they were contributing to the symptoms of depression that I didn't want to feel anymore. Yeah. Why Why did it happen? Um, not fulfilling my purpose. Mm. Being in an environment or in a, in a job that even though that's what I trained to do, it wasn't what I wanted to do anymore. And even though my intuition, my feeling inside was like, you're done here. Mm. It took five years for me to take action, to follow that guidance. And every you know every day every month that went by became harder and harder and harder for me to maintain motivation I'd have spurts of motivation when something was going well but if I look at that time it was just a slow decline in my energy and desire to engage with life mm. and, and and what was the um, the catalyst or what was the the trigger point that changed that all I left the job and decided Why? I wasn't I wasn't going to be a scientist anymore. What was the um, what was the reason? So at first, I thought it was the environment. It was felt pretty toxic. There's lots of uh, gender bias, favoritism stuff. Um, the relationships seemed a bit icky. Not necessarily mm. my group, but just observing how people related to each other. It just mm. felt cold. It felt, you know, this kind of cold professional, polite. No one felt like they were being real. Um, you know, so there's the easy blame of the culture. Mm. There's the easy blame of academia in general, of uh, incentivized research that you only study or you apply for things that are sexy or publishable or fundable, but not necessarily things that you really are interested in. <laughs> not really able to take risks because, well, you're not going to get funded for that or what if it doesn't work, all that stuff. So there's that area that I could blame. But ultimately, I was done with that job. I was done. I had done what I needed to do there. I'd learned what I needed to learn mm. sufficiently and it's time for me to move on. I have other things. I had other things that I need to do, clearly. And denying that inner voice saying, what am I doing here? like get out um, not listening to it and moving further and further and further away from this kind of other path that was unfolding or could have unfolded was tiring it's tiring to maintain a life that isn't yours to maintain and that would just I just got 
felt drained. So when I left academia, I didn't have any job, didn't know what I was going to do next. I didn't have any more stability in my life. The thing that had stabilized me for years, as well as some other supports in my life outside my profession, were not there. So when you don't have those stability points, when you're going through a transition, it's like you get lifted out of your body or you get lifted out of your life and you're kind of floating in your life and can't get grounded. And so I just felt extremely exhausted, just typical experiences of depression where you just have no energy to do anything, mm. almost no will to live, um, can't see beyond that darkness. And um, yeah, so it was just, it was slowly happening and just me leaving is what put me right into that intense space. That's a story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I'm, I'm just, I'm just interested at the sort of the trigger point or the, uh, the incident that made you leave. Was it because it was a culmination of all the? Uh... Yeah, it's a combination of not feeling satisfied with my work, not feeling like I'm contributing to something meaningful. Mm. It was cancer research. We're so far removed from actual patient experience, mm. and. Mm even though I thought about transitioning into more qualitative research or looking direct, working directly with more with patient experience, it just didn't, the opportunities didn't come up mm. for me. So I just felt like, well, maybe I'm not meant to be here. So I had gone through some, you know, interpersonal issues in the previous years. And it was like 2010, January, 2010, I just made a promise to myself, this is my last year. And mm. even if I don't have a job by the end of the year, I'm done. So mm. I had to fulfill that promise. Mm. I owed it to myself, and that was it. So <laughs> wow. nothing really happened in that year mm. um, to make me go, "Damn it, I'm out of here." But yeah. you know, the decision was made. And so, yeah. I don't know about you, but if you decide, if you make a decision, you you know, you have a strong conviction to follow a new path. It's so hard to stay in the old path because you're ready to yeah. move to the next one. You've made that decision. So when you resign from a job and you have to give, you know, six weeks notice, coming in for those six weeks is torture. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and particularly if you don't fulfill that, is is such um, it's it's torture, torture for the self. Yeah. You know, it is very difficult. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting that you talked about different hats that doctors wear. And really, the only hat that I remember I was taught about is being the, you know, academic, um, symptomatic and diagnosis and treatment doctor. I mean, mm. we weren't taught anything about being a friend and being a pastor and being a, a teacher or being a listener. I mean, I can't remember any of the. I mean, obviously, I I trained a long, long time ago, and things have changed since then. Um, but do you think there's a role for that in in medical school and undergraduate study, for looking at the other aspects of roles and expectations for both doctors and patients? Yeah, whether it's taught or not, that's the reality. That's what ends up happening because you mm. you know you encounter your patient, you recognize they have all these needs beyond what you've been trained to believe that you can do with them, yeah. that you're kind of forced to enter into these different roles. So you, it helps to define what role you're playing with mm. them besides the clinical expert mm. 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 because that's not going to cut it. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, these things happen outside 
work in the sense that we have these different roles outside the work but is it worth sort of formalizing and sort of making it a bit more regimental just that that people recognize how important these different roles are uh, I think so because then that would reduce the shell shock when people start actually mm. interacting with patients beyond the theoretical f- world of medical school mm. and the one of the biggest problems is that there's differential different expectations of what the doctor could do or what the patient could do mm. so between mm. the doctor and patient so wouldn't it be great if those expectations were discussed up front mm. and so and some some way forward could be negotiated between doctor and patient instead of this is what this is the unwritten expectation I've had of you doctor and this is the unwritten expectation I have of you patient and I'm going to give you advice and I'm going to assume that it's so easy that you, you will take it because my authority should be enough but what if they don't have the capacity to do that what if they have other priorities what if they can't afford that prescription what mm. if what if what if what if so unless there's some understanding of what you're there to do and how you can help them and that's explicit it's agreed on it's understood then there's going to be different agendas interacting in any patient doctor encounter or patient Mm. nurse encounter so it helps to talk about these things during the training that your role is a listener that your role is a coach and then to be provided with training and coaching Mm. and training in spiritual care or train mm. you know all those different roles that you're everyone's going to inevitably play and in teamwork mm. Mm. how to collaborate how yeah. to negotiate how to demonstrate assertive communication so these are all different skills required to play these different roles yeah that are it, inevitable it, and it's funny that we call these soft skills as well rather than essential skills <laughs> I don't call them. I call them being human skills. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, um, I, I had this discussion with a lot of people, and it it's about uh, educating them early, rather than waiting until they develop, you know, certain habits and and ideas from from teens and later. Um, but you know that that requires a political will, and it requires cultural change and it takes Lots a long time yeah it, it takes yeah. a long time and, and you know going back to this concept of soft skills and in intuition is that if we look at our educational model that we you know we grow into from a young age it's not there to cultivate emotional intelligence it hasn't been one to help us navigate our intuition it's been about intellectual development mm, mm. and um, and knowing things versus or in addition to how we know things mm. how do we know what we know how do we have conversations with someone and just get a flash of insight about what's going on for them without them having said anything and that you kind of share what you just thought of or mm. what just came to mind mm. and they're shocked that you know all that information there are other ways to perceive or receive information that goes beyond what we learn in a textbook or through transmission of information from person to stu- teacher to student. Mm. And so that hasn't been part of our education. It's been kind of neglected and ignored, mm. but they're vital aspects of how we relate and understand each other mm. and how we help others heal. Mm. 
Yeah. So yeah. it's fundamental, um, especially in medical school, which are meant to be training healers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was definitely fundamental for me for losing my intuition and my um, true skill, which is which is being a healing human being. And mm. you know, having spent uh, school and medical school, you kind of flip uh, flip into that intellectual and that academic switch which for some it's it's what they're about and we should celebrate that and and you know we should push them to the forefront and let them um, excel in that excellence that they have of of academia Um, Mm. but I'm not academic and the problems that I had what about the rest of us (laughs) yeah yeah I mean the problems that I had in medical school and training and everything else when I was working in the NHS was related to my poor academic abilities and because I get bored with facts and figures I get bored with statistics I can't do all that all that fancy I don't know what they're called these days but yeah all those studies and help help me here Naz <laughs> yeah qua- well and quantitative approaches the the, yeah. the ways that we believe something is true based on uh, what our senses tell us, what you know, physical mm. senses tell us, versus something other ways of understanding experience that are also valid. So they can work beautifully together, mm. but the training only supports the development and the refinement of, you know, one those those aspects, the the things that are measurable, mm. versus the things that are felt and experienced. So can we teach intuition? Um, we can definitely teach intuition and intuition is basically not something I can tell you to do it's something I can facilitate Mm. or help help facilitate so it's helping the other person tune into themselves and their feeling nature and developing grasping the language of that so what I mean is for example when someone has a pain in their body and you know I'm talking with them and they're telling me about a pain in their body and I get them to kind of go into more of a mindful state and to put all their attention and focus into that pain Mm. and then I ask what does it look like what does it feel like what is the temperature is it throbbing what is it giving a message what is it telling you Mm. and every single time they'll have something and majority of the time when they actually talk about it and we start to tease out what that pain is for them Mm. in the language that has value to them, Mm. the pain dissipates. Mm. 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 Because it's something that they're not avoiding and they're trying to, you know, numb with either medication or avoidance or anything like that. Mm. It's something that they're validating, they're acknowledging, and they're actually curious about. And it's not scary. It's just how our body communicates with us. So that's intuition, how our our feelings hold a lot of information about what we believe about things. And they hold messages, but we're not so great at acknowledging that because we haven't necessarily been taught to tune into that aspect of the self. We've been taught to think about things, but not feel about things. Mm. Mm. Unless we've had good teachers. But generally, if we rely on education, the system, the curriculum, it's not about that. 
So have, have you had formal teachers to develop that intuition skills? Yes. Um, yeah, I've trained intensively and continue to, to keep honing that in. So the only way to really understand the, your language of intuition is through trusting it. So a lot of the time people feel it's their imagination. Fine, it could be your imagination, but it's still a source of information about how you think and feel. Um, mainly about how you feel or experience your world or your inner world. So by talking about it and sharing what your experience with someone else, especially if you're working with someone else trying to help them and you're gaining information about what might be going on for them beyond what they're telling you, by sharing that information and it resonating with that person being helped, that builds your confidence that you're not just making stuff up, that you're actually perceiving something that is real and the only way to do that is to trust it. And the only way to develop it is to trust it and to follow it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, ab absolutely. It's um, trusting the self and looking within. I, we, we, we don't do much of that at all, to be honest, mm. at all. And uh, I mean, in, 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 in my book, it, it literally is an internal book in the sense that you spend 30 days looking inside of you <laughs> yeah just to get you into the habit going on inside. Yeah. yeah just to get you to inquiring yes and you know uh, as you know what we see outside of us is actually in inside of us so mm. our reality is our internal reality and how we look at things is different for each single human being um, There's no two experiences that are the same. Even if someone shared a, a similar story, mm, mm. the conditions, the circumstances, the perceptions are all going to be unique. Yeah. So we can never truly understand someone else's experience, but we can imagine what it might be like without mm. having to have gone through something similar because we can be tuned in to what's happening in their world mm, mm. through which requires empathy, but it's how our intuition works. We feel what it might be like. We can feel, some people can feel in their own body what the other person's feeling, like I can feel in my own body where mm. someone else's pain is. Mm. 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 And the, when I ask them to look at that pain and the images or the information they get, that's what I see as well. So I'm really in their world, mm. not invading their world with permission, of course, but it's just... There's, it doesn't require any effort on my part. It just is. It's just this natural ability because I've been working on it for so long just to go beyond what their words are telling me but to feel what they're feeling. And that way I can help them navigate because they haven't navigated it yet. Mm. Mm. So it's like a helping hand. It is a helping hand without taking over, without you know taking over their ship and then telling them what to be doing. It's just... Look at this. What do you see? What yeah. what what do you perceive? And then yeah. sharing what I'm perceiving and seeing what resonates. So it's, it's a collaboration. Yeah, and it's so much easier when you've got another human being with you. Just just the fact yeah. that another human being is there is a great uh, comfort and relief. Yeah, I think it's a requirement for the process to be successful. That you can do it on your own, but to have that confirmation that someone else is seeing what you're seeing or feeling what you're feeling or with you just in general is a comfort 
and it's it's just confirming and validating so that in itself is powerful mm-hmm. I mean it's different from meditation would you say um, for me I use meditation to facilitate that process because meditation gets me into a zone of openness mm. and clarity and my mind is not involved so it's not there's no real thinking mm. it's mm. a direct perception or direct experience mm. which to me is a different thing than the thinking processes or the mental processes mm. because it's a visceral or a somatic experience mm. And it's, quite, and it's quite physiological as well, which is where the emotions come in. And it's mm. quite a physiological response. And yes. You know, some people may be a bit reluctant or scared because it is quite physiological. Mm. You know, that it does raise the blood pressure and it does uh, cause you to have blushes and, and physiological responses. Yeah, so... But it's and fun. Not it's everyone fun. wants to go there. Yeah, and not everyone wants to go there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I find it very um, awakening. I feel alive when mm. you're sort of really, really in tune and intuitive with your patient and you're kind of there for them. Uh, yeah. It doesn't always happen because I do feel the drain. Um, mm. if you... And not everyone's open. Not everyone's open. So you can't go... You can't access people in the same way mm. all the time. Mm. They have mm. to feel open mm. to yeah. wanting that level of help. And it's not even something that they have to say or be conscious of. It's just if people have a lot of gu- you know, guards up because they've yeah. been betrayed, they've been deceived, they've had, lo- they've had trauma, they're yeah. going to have some very strong fortresses around them. So they're not necessarily going to be so open and mm. wanting anyone to look into them. They might mm. have a lot of shame that they're mm. trying to conceal. Mm, yeah. I mean, who doesn't want to be concealing their shame? It's, that's part of the thing that we've been conditioned to do. Yeah. Um, again, not everyone, but, you know, so that there's a lot of effort involved in trying to keep that hidden. Um, and as a professional, when you're tuning in, there's a difference between being with someone and observing what's going on for them or even feeling it in your body and going too far where you're internalizing mm. their feeling in your body you're absorbing mm. it you're kind of feeling it as as if it's your own and not mm. being able to distinguish between the boundary the boundary between you and that other person so you kind of merge instead of re- retaining your boundary and your objectivity mm. so i think that's what happens with empathic overload or compassion what's called compassion fatigue um where you just become overwhelmed by this emotional flood of information or this inf- the flood of information that comes with emotions and you don't know what to do with it and it kind of s- absorbs into your system and stays there how can we stop that um lots of ways again it requires a lot of self-inquiry knowing your boundaries knowing where you end um not trying to solve all someone someone's problems, not feeling responsible for their problems or their experience because they're responsible for their experience. You're only responsible for what your role in supporting them. Mm. So again, the clear boundary thing, knowing your roles comes back to that. Mm. Um, there are practices to use your breathing to breathe that through you so you're not 
internalizing it, you're intending to just keep breathing through. So being connected to your breath instead of holding your breath and holding it all in and going, shit, what do I do with this person now? What do I tell them? What am I supposed to do? That stuff, I don't have an answer. That's that sort of pressure. We feel responsible to do something instead of just being present and just allowing their experience, them to have their experience, them to feel upset. So feeling like we have to do something about it because they shared their problem with with us, that's another mm. um, risk. Mm. Mm. So when we lose our ability to maintain objectivity and be realistic about what we can do with them in the time we have with them and within the confines of our role, then again it becomes risky business and we can um, take on too much. And causes burnout. I think that is more around compassion fatigue. Mm. That's Mm. a whole other conversation about what's compassion fatigue, what's burnout, what's not compassion fatigue, because it has nothing to do with compassion. (laughs) Um, I I like to call it an empathic overload. Like we've gone too far in empathy. Instead of just looking in someone's world, we've kind of entered into their world and we're taking part of their world back with us after Mm. the consultation. And not the good stuff, just the stuff that bothers us or is uncomfortable um, or brings up our own related story. Hmm. It becomes a bit about us. Can, can, can you stop that from happening? Um, yes, you can. And you can also, it can, I mean, it can happen anyway, but hmm. there are different practices, again, where you go into your own body. You know, this is again about using your intuition to seek in your body wherever there's pain or comfort or or tension and interrogate it. What's this about? Why do I feel tense? What's going on here? And using that approach, which can sound a bit freaky and out there, but, you know, we need to develop dialogue with ourselves so that we can tap into what's going on inside our world. And if we just kind of ignore it, or mm. just not even know that it's there, mm. um, we're going to have these pains and issues in our body and we're just not going to know what to do about it. Or we'll just automatically go and have to go see a doctor before we've given us ourselves a chance to um, take a look at it. Mm-hmm. And it's not about avoiding or um, not seeing a doctor, but it's about or any health professional for that matter, but it's about giving ourselves a chance to tune in to our world and trying to learn what is my body trying to tell me? What is the information within my emotions that are trying to communicate with me right now that I'm doing really well with avoiding or or neglecting or repressing through some of my many addictions (laughs) or (laughs) evasive actions because some of those emotions are really hard to, to feel disappointment is a hard one grief regret resentment guilt shame anger society is not great at feeling those things so we have really good ways of not feeling them but then they they don't when we don't feel them we don't allow them with the same ease that we allow joy and bliss and happiness and contentment and peace and tranquility then we're not working with the full set of information that we have access to. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, 
it, you know we go back to culture it's sort of ingrained within us from from an early age I remember me and if I got upset or cried or you know had a tantrum I wasn't allowed to continue and yeah uh, I'd suppress that um, yeah I got the I'm too, you're too sensitive but now I realize sensitivity is a bloody good gift to have <laughs> well apparently I'm too emotional as well you know, <coughs> we were with some friends the other day and and I got him apparently I got emotional too emotional we were talking about education and I mean I home educate our children and they got upset because of it and I got emotional about it and they got really upset Oh, you got so. passionate about it. <laughs> yeah, passion, emotion. Um, but, you know, these are, are such essential humanistic characteristics which we can never deny, both the positive and the negative. Well, if we deny it, that's how that's part of a lot of illness. Yeah. Because we're yeah. not great at allowing certain feelings to come up, especially since, again, if people have experienced types of childhood trauma, then they're going to carry with them memories or experiences that we don't want to revisit. So we have to do a good job of repressing and then um, putting more emphasis on developing our intellect as a way to help us navigate. But at a certain point in our life, that's no longer, we're not going to be able to get away with that. Mm. At some stage, those emotions, that Pandora box is going to want to open because the pressure is so strong that it's just going to go boom. And if we don't have great ways of working with what emerges don't have enough support then it's going to be overwhelming and we won't know how to deal with it and our will just be emotional swings yeah yeah i mean well, what what would you say the you know the three top um ways of uh, tuning back into your intuition and your you know true emotional state well if you haven't done it yet then that my strongest recommendation is to do it with a skilled practitioner who can help guide you through the a process because how do you know what to look for if you've never done it? Mm. So always start with someone with the intention that they're going to teach you to how to do it yourself mm. so that you don't depend on someone else to help you out with that. Mm. Um, journaling is an easy one as well mm. where you just stream of consciousness writing, you just write and write, you just intend to write five pages, you don't know what's going to come out and you just right eventually the stuff on the surface of your mind is sloughed off it's the rubbish and then out from under that emerges this wisdom and you know lots of things that make you cry because mm. it's finally able to come out so that's an easy potentially safer version um some people say meditation that's one way but mm. Again, I wouldn't recommend that without guidance because you don't know what's lurking underneath the surface. Mm. So when you finally give yourself space, all sorts of stuff can come into your awareness that can be upsetting. And you might feel like you're doing meditation all wrong or you might feel like it becomes overwhelming. So again, always do this sort of thing with a guide, with a very well-trained, skilled guide. I just don't think we should be doing anything alone until we've learned sufficiently how to do it and that we could feel secure or stable doing it ourselves yeah uh, in, in, in terms of spirituality because you talk about spirituality um, the spirituality principles mm. what, what do you mean by that spirituality principles 
I think people define spirituality um, in so many different ways. It's what helps you feel connected to your world, mm. helps you give you meaning about your experiences um, and the world around you. Mm. So it's whatever helps you feel connected with yourself, your community, your family, your profession, your purpose, as well as something bigger than yourself. Mm, 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 and that you're an unfolding, mm. you're a work in progress and that you're evolving and the process that that takes. Um, spiritual practices can help you and principles can help you navigate that or understand these, the unfolding process. Mm. And, and uh, in terms of your top spiritual principles, I mean, you talk about connection. Um, mm. Are there like a number of principles that you sort of follow or you uh, adhere to or? I have pillars that I follow. Mm. Um, so one is meditation. So that's mm. a way of connecting mm. with all that I am, um, as well as my spiritual connection to the universe, mm. God, mm. Goddess, all of the above. It's mm. all the same to me. Quantum field, universe, <laughs> Mother Earth, Goddess, you know, whatever name human spirit they're all the same yeah, to me science science all the same um it's just the words we use to define mm. things that limits them and restricts them it's like no you can't believe in that if you believe in that it's like it's not even a belief it's just connection it's yeah. all to me yeah. um so meditation practice that purify my mind so uh, a lot of spiritual practices like chanting mantra mm. for example yeah. um they have a there's more res, there's more research evidence evidence emerging around the beneficial effects of chanting mantra on regulating nervous system mm. restoring mm. you know activating parasympathetic nervous system affecting cortisol le levels all sorts of physiological changes that support more of this peacefulness so and it's very fast compared to say mindfulness so mm. <laughs> i prefer really? that i like the fast things i like shortcuts without cutting corners um a lot of studying deeply so you know lots of people who like to read lots of books around different subjects so there's kind of broadly reading I like to go deep into something mm. and from there I can start to really wrestle with ideas and develop wisdom from that process so I'm interested in wisdom not just knowledge mm. knowledge is an access to wisdom um, because wisdom is something that is can be universally applied and when we go through you know hardships in our life the lessons that we can learn from them maybe we don't see them in the moment but when we've gotten distance and we've evolved to a degree that we can feel at peace with what happened in the past and we actually can feel grateful potentially about that thing that happened in the past that feeling is not just a cognitive thing it's a an embodied thing and so when we can share the wisdom of our learning that is the medicine for other people who are going through it so it's a way of giving back to people who are wanting to get gain a deeper understanding of their own processes. Um, so wisdom, studying the virtues. So there's, if you look at all the different religions and traditions on the planet, there's some uh, universal concepts like compassion, understanding, tolerance, acceptance, discipline, mm. trust, faith, prayerfulness. Mm. You know, so many different 
commitment, determination, mm. perseverance. So those are the virtues. So mm. learning to embody all of them. Mm. <laughs> so it's a big there's a lot out task. there. <laughs> yeah, humility. You know. So there's so many, and those are the things that those are the things that I um, aim to master. Not necessarily rising to the corporate ladder. That's not that interesting. It's those <laughs> things that I want to cultivate because these are the things that we, these are to me the, like our soul's qualities that we live, we wear on our outside. Mm. So people are, feel the effect of that. Mm. Um, mm. So that's the legacy you leave behind or after an interaction with someone, they remember that feeling. So mm. those are the things that I'm focused on. Yeah. So a number of pillars, yeah. uh, recognizing diversity that mm. there's no mm. one way to look at things that mm. there's multiple ways and it adds to the color and interest you know how interesting this world is mm. and as soon as i start to think that my way is the best way well i'm being an idiot because i'm excluding a whole subset of interesting ways of perceiving the world that mm. are valuable mm. they may not be my truth but they're somebody's truth and that's important too mm. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I've got eight pillars that I follow, and those are, I guess, spiritual practices as well as principles that help guide me. You know, one of them is 100% responsibility. Mm, so mm, I take mm. responsibility for the for what I put out in the world. I'm not responsible for someone else, mm. but if something, if I experience something negatively, well, then it's my perception that gives rise to negativity or my response to something that can be positive or negative. So I'm responsible for how I respond to these things. Yeah. So I want to, if I've upset someone, well, I need to take responsibility for my role in that and make amends. And sometimes that's nothing to do with me. They're upset because of whatever's going on for them. So learning of what's mine and what's theirs as well. So yeah. without exacerbating the problem. <laughs> you know, that is a difficult boundary to recognize but that's where the internal work uh, is required to know when your 100% responsibility ends and other people's responsibilities start um, yeah but and you know that's also, but that's a yeah. deep discussion you know I, I knew it sort of get a bit <laughs> um, so in, in terms of the art of healing because you mentioned that quite a bit in your work mm. Um, so, so essentially, it sort of in, encompasses what you've been talking about in terms of the spiritual principles and the um, the boundaries that you talk about, and the and the uh, let's call it the negative emotions that you have. Mm. Um, negative doesn't mean bad. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know, we've got to call it something. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to the good stuff, we can't call it bad. Um, but you know, you got to have negative with positive, otherwise it's not a negative. You know, that's just yes. the way it is. Um, uh, healing. I mean, is is there more to healing, or is it sort of as simple as that? Um, well, there's an art and a science to healing, and depends what you consider healing. For me, healing is the completion of a process. So, coming to peace after mm. experiencing conflict, mm. returning to yourself, reclaiming aspects of yourself that have been left in the past because of some shitty thing that happened that you can bring them back into the present integrate them into your current self and feel at ease and peace with who you are now and who you were then mm -hmm. as a part of a process to get you to where you are now so um doesn't mean that your illness will disappear mm -hmm. but you can come to be 
place of acceptance of peace with that in your life. So mm. that to me, whatever enables that is a healing process. So mm. it can come through storytelling. Um, again, sharing wisdom of your own experience with other people who need to hear that right now. And it could be such a relief to know that they're not alone and that that because someone else went through it, that they can get through it too. So provide some strengths. Um, the healing interaction. So I feel like healing, we can do our own self-healing, but I feel like what happens between two people or within a group of people is just profoundly powerful. Mm. It's a whole other level of healing that occurs. Um, so the art, so if I, speaking as a practitioner or facilitator, then there's things that I need to embody in order to facilitate a process. I can't be with somebody and they're sharing the story and feeling judgmental mm. about what they're telling me or trying to convince them that what they're feeling is not correct or not accurate, that I'm employing my own agenda or my own lens of experience on them. That's not going to help heal anything. So I have to actually approach everything that they bring to me with unconditional love, mm. with compassion, with um, a sense of peace. And so when we don't feel at peace with something, it's because we're not feeling at peace with what's something inside of ourselves. Mm. So flagging that within a session, like, ooh, this is bringing something up for me, means that some, I need to, they're bringing something to me to help me as well mm. uh, process something or work through something to heal something for myself because we're not complete. We have mm. things we need to heal as healers as well. So it's my approach my ability to have rapport with, with them, their ability to trust me, mm. because without trust, nothing's going to happen. Trust mm. is like an opening. And for me, I need to have empathy. So being where they're at, rather than where I want them to be. I also need to hold a vision to, of their potential, that they're not just someone with depression or cancer, that they're a human being with incredible spirit and who have gotten through so much. They're resilient they have strength, they have all these kind of superpowers that they're not always aware that they have. And mm -hmm. so it's my role sometimes to help them realize that. Mm -hmm. Not by saying, oh, but you're amazing, you're great. No, hearing their story and pointing out the things that they're saying that reveal those aspects about themselves or reframing because we tend to see ourselves quite negatively, but there's another way of looking at things that are quite um, positive, the things that we can appreciate. So I need to be able to hold a big vision that this person can get through whatever it is they're going through and come to the other side of it with strength and with equanimity or at least acceptance. Mm -hmm. So if I don't have that vision for them, well, how can I help their mind or their consciousness get there too? Mm -hmm. So I don't have to know what's going to happen. I can't know what's going to happen. I just have to have a desire so that they fulfill their potential or that they remember themselves as powerful and human and amazing. Um, so I have to see that in them and that it's kind of like that's what pulls the process towards that so those are a few elements that the healer can hold to support the person who are, who's receiving to um, undergo a healing process or to you know unfold yeah that's, that's amazing uh, sorry sorry I've, I've cut sorry, you up sorry no. no I talk too much <laughs> uh yeah passion, passion yeah ab absolutely i mean that's that's amazing if if our doc i mean if i had these kind of 
senses, my healing senses or my healing powers, and working on them from a from an early stage, I think um, would have made a massive difference to to my patients. Definitely. Um, do you see I'm this? Sure, you've got a massive difference for your patients. <laughs> it's just that you don't. We don't know what we don't know, and it's until we decide that we want to understand how we can facilitate these amazing beneficial experiences for people. Um, unless we want, unless we know to do that, to seek that, or to ask that question, mm. we won't. We don't get that. I, I think probably we do it on autopilot, and we do it automatically. And we don't give ourselves enough credit for doing these things. And I think now that we're having this discussion, it becomes, you kind of look back with that wisdom, because you have wisdom now, of mm -hmm. what happened in the past, and have accepted that actually you did do the healing and you did process their trauma and your trauma at the same time. Mm. And you found yourself at the same time without, without actually giving it a formal process but I think having so, that formal process as being quite formal <laughs> it's good to mm. have uh, and uh, just sort of formalize things and I think that's why it's important that we have people like yourself to formalize the um, the, the spiritual and the healing and the intuition and the empathy and the emotion just to put it out there on paper and in a book and um, your book's coming out at some stage tell us about your book oh oh no it keeps changing <laughs> I'm not gonna talk about it why <laughs> but I know I know what it's I know I'm clear about what it's about now but I'm not gonna talk about it yet so it's a uh, surprise surprise book yep surprise book yeah I mean I had uh, though I wrote my book is I just got it out there you know I, yeah. I, I spent years and years and years um, traumatizing <laughs> and it was just like right that's it it's going out there and even when it went out there it was still it must be useless it's worthless it's you know that constant negative voice in the head constantly telling you yeah. that it's um, a waste of time and this yeah. and yeah and just seeing seeing the difference that it makes to people I think you know as you look back you do notice the uh, the immense change that you're having on other people. Um, you talk about placebo effect quite a lot. And that's an interesting topic. I know it will probably need a whole show on the placebo effect. So yes. um, we'll probably leave that then, the placebo effect, for another time. Yeah. Well, I kind of talked about it just now when I, I talked about the attributes of a healer. Hmm. So these are the things that actually capitalize on the placebo effect and make it con make it intentional without being deceptive still being ethical but this is the thing you know it's how we use our mind and our being in our intention to have a positive effect on someone else that isn't manipulative manipulating or um, using our influence in a negative way so that is a taster of what yet to come on another podcast about cool. the placebo effect cool cool <laughs> so uh, it's a big topic emotion and intuition mm. but i think it, it it's something that's essential as a physician um that we allow ourselves 
uh, to tune into that um, inherent ability that we all have from from a super young age, and just mm -hmm. allowing that um, collective unconsciousness that we're all part of, mm. and 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 people know what that means uh, deep in deep inside. It means different things for different people, yeah. but it's just allowing that um, uh, old wisdom into oneself. Yeah, I think simply the collective unconscious is just our desire as humans to meet, have our needs met, our need mm. to be loved, to mm. belong, to mm. feel safe, to feel like we are accepted, we're valuable, we're worthy. So these are the same for everyone, whether we talk about it or not. Mm. So anything, all our issues come from not feeling those things or not having those needs met. Mm. So using our intuition is look is a way of helping us tap into what is their thing that they really need mm. what it matters to them so much that they're not getting and it's coming out in their aggressive blame towards the doctor mm. about being late or you know like what mm. is there's always more than just the story of what people are saying mm. so intuition helps us get to that and when we practice it we can get to it almost immediately mm. it becomes very easy to just detect yeah, it's a quick process. You know, it's not something yeah. that takes you know ten ten minutes to do. It's 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 no. it's instant essentially. Yeah. Cool. So practice helps it out. Practice, yes, practice makes permanent, as I've heard from mm. some people. I like that one. I haven't heard that. <laughs> yeah, I thought <laughs> I thought you'd like that one. I mean, I have changed it to practice makes. Uh, I can't remember now. Something. Hydrism. Anyway, I'll, I'll probably tweet it out <laughs> somewhere. So um, yes. you're part of the uh, Safe Space Health movement. That's interesting. Yes. Tell me more about that. So, yes, it is an app. It's coming out later on this year. And it's a safe space for health professionals and um, students who are training to become any of the diverse health professions. Cool. Um, to anonymously offload and debrief about the things that um, are getting to them mm. or things they want to just share in a, with a group of people um, who they don't know and from around the world and that they'll be heard, they'll be respected, accepted. So it's about establishing this safe space. Cool. Um, and there'll be lots of other things to it that go beyond the safe space that link into their own support networks as well as um, part of a, a broader suicide prevention mm. initiative. Mm. So we're, our aim is to really address some of the upstream risks mm. that can lead to mental health um, dis distress or mental illness and then can also eventuate or morph into suicide ideation mm. and suicide so we, we really wanted to go upstream cool. and provide something that's really needed by the community that the collective unconscious has been screaming for <laughs> yes yes and we're not listening to it um, so we'll leave some uh, links uh, in the notes today for that um, mm. if, if they if they want to get hold of you Nats what's the best way to get hold of you and what's your bits they can yeah, they can find me on Twitter at Nats for Docs. 
so my name, they can find me under my name, um, or they can email me at hello at drnataliemartinek.com. Cool, cool. So um, yeah. all the bits and pieces will be on the uh, the, the notes and the website. Um, I always ask this question at the end. You've, you've probably heard this question before. What's the naughtiest thing you've ever done, Nats? You asked me, and I'm just so not naughty. Um, and I just, you know, you're help. You're trying to get me into the vault. What have I done? It's naughty. Depends what age. Are you looking for an age range? <laughs> you're not going to help me. Okay, <laughs> I'm I'm so lame. Um, just sneaking out, doing lots of lying, manipulating to get my way. And so that I can leave my leave my protective, uh, sheltered upbringing and explore the world a little more with some other naughty people. So um, I haven't me. I haven't had a you know a proper naughty answer yet so far. Everyone's keeps uh, avoiding that question. You're asking to out <laughs> me. I have no. I do have some naughty things, but nothing I want to reveal live. <laughs> cool. Cool. <laughs> Cool. Excellent. So um, thanks for your time, Nats. And thank you, Hyder. Thank, thank you, everyone, for listening. And until next time, um, may your spirits be surgically present. Um, that, that, quite, <laughs> that quite didn't work, did it? Okay, guys. May have your a... spirits not be surgically removed. Removed. <laughs> okay, guys. Have a good one. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this installment of the Surgical Spirit Podcast. For all the latest in the world of Surgical Spirit, don't forget to follow on Twitter at The Third Eye Doc and catch me on Facebook at the page The Third Eye Doctor. You can visit the website at www.thethirdeyedoctor.co.uk for more information on the work that I do. And please send us feedback and questions and suggestions for the podcast. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. I've been Dr. Haida Al-Hakim and I'll see you next time.